Welcome back to a new installment of the Wide Ride Podcast. I'm Manny Navarro, Miami Hurricanes beat writer for The Athletic. It is Wednesday, May 11th, around 2.30 p.m. It's been about two weeks since I uh, did another podcast. Uh, had Carlos Ledo of the MIA All Day Pod on with me then. Talked a lot about Nigel Pack's $800,000 deal with John Ruiz and where Miami was sort of at with that and Isaiah Wong and the whole basketball team and... Uh, we talked a lot about NIL, and the conversation has obviously continued over the last two weeks. I know at the time I was telling you guys I might actually be getting on a plane with Ruiz to fly to Arizona to pick up the Cavender Twins and then Atlanta to, to pick up Nigel Pack. Uh, well, that trip obviously didn't happen. Uh, otherwise, I would have written about it. Ruiz called me uh, Tuesday and said that uh, he was not allowed to pick up the Cavender Twins or Pack on his private jet until they were officially enrolled as students or accepted in the university. At that point, I guess their NIL deals would become official or whatever. They could technically count as employees for him, but I think until that happens, that's that he will not be getting them on his private jet. At least that's what he told me anyway. He said, I'm still invited to go with him. Uh, hopefully I can. I'd like to write a story about the Cavender twins who were here last Friday, uh, along with uh, Nigel Pack and a couple of the other new NIL additions. They were here to celebrate at Ruiz's launch party for his boat racing company, Lumen C, the races that he's trying to get going here. I attended that party. It was over at the old Miami Herald uh, building or where, where it once stood right there off of Biscayne, close to uh, where the Miami Heat play their basketball games. And... Um, it was an interesting night, million-dollar boats, million-dollar cars, uh, NIL, VIP room. I was able to get into, talk to a lot of players and parents and agents. Had a good time talking to them. I'll get into that a little bit more. But this episode specifically, just so you know right off the bat, uh, it's an interview I did. Uh, it's primarily an interview I did with Malik Rozier, former Hurricanes quarterback who led the team in 2017, of course, to the ACC championship game and the only double-digit win season in the last 20 years uh, since since Miami was playing for a national championship. So not a bad little feather in his cap. Good conversation with Malik. We'll get into that in a bit. But I wanted to take at least 10 minutes here to cover some, some quick topics, including what's been going on here in college football. Number one, I, I did go to Phoenix last, last week. I still got on a plane and went to Arizona. It's where the Athletic was having their annual meeting. Uh, got to hang out with a lot of other beat writers and national writers like Bruce Feldman and uh, Andy Staples and our whole crew, uh, Nicole Auerbach, um, Stu Mandel, good good group of people, a lot of, lot of well-connected people in college football. They were obviously in Arizona to also cover a lot of these conference uh, commissioner meetings and speak to athletic directors. It was all happening down the road from where we were staying. I actually played a little basketball with some of the writers, embarrassed myself, uh, but uh, a lot of good conversation was had. You know, NIL has become a bigger deal. The NCAA, of course, saying that they want to crack down on the relationships between boosters and prospective student-athletes and how it's still against the rules to try to entice these kids to come to schools with NIL deals, etc., I don't know how you put the uh, genie back in the bottle at this point, but uh, it's certainly an interesting storyline. A lot of a lot of good stories on theathletic.com about it. I actually contributed uh, getting an interview with Ruiz and asking him some questions. You'll see he's quoted in one of the stories that we produced uh, on Monday. Like I said, interesting time at his party last Friday night. Um, got to speak with... Uh, you know, a few players, Caleb Johnson, Mitch Lagude, the transfer from UCLA. Uh, I met up with Daryl Jackson, the big defensive tackle from Maryland. Huge kid, big body kid. Really impressed by Agude's size, by the way, too. Reminded me a lot of Jermaine Johnson. 
of course, who was the ACC Defensive Player of the Year just from a size and body perspective. Really smart, bright kid. Jake Garcia, Tyler Van Dyke, Xavier Estrepo, the Cavender Twins, they were all there. I watched uh, uh, John Ruiz DJ for about an hour. <laughs> a lot of that good good old uh, freestyle Power 96 music. If you're from Miami, you know what I'm talking about. Ruiz also went on stage and said he's in, in, in talks to buy the Marlins and Dolphins. He's, he's obviously very wealthy and very... Uh, interested in making an impact in the sports landscape in South Florida. I'll have a story on all of that here in the coming days. But I did learn some things at the launch party. Number one, Belitnikoff Award winner Jordan Addison, who shocked a lot of people when he put his name in the transfer portal last weekend, basically showed no interest in Miami whatsoever. They've been reaching out to him. Uh, no phone calls back uh, from what I've been told, which is why you see Miami is now pursuing former UCF receiver Jalen Robinson is visiting Miami this week. Uh, I spoke to uh, an intermediary who told me Robinson has been all over the place with where he wants to go to school. Uh, you know, He did attend Oklahoma initially before going to UCF. He's from the Dallas area. And last month I was told he was headed to SMU. So obviously it's anybody's guess where he's headed now. But you know, from a scholarship standpoint, I know that Miami's right around, at least according to my account, 83 scholarships. They've got two left to use. Uh, I know they've obviously offered Jalen Robinson. Um, and they've also um, offered an offensive lineman from the University of Charlotte. So maybe those are two areas where they're still adding on to the roster. We'll see what Mario Cristobal does here from now until the start of fall camp. But uh, that's going on in terms of roster management. Um, I can tell you uh, that uh, the defensive lineman, Daryl Jackson, who Miami beat out for Florida, I was told that he signed a three-year $100,000 deal, 100000 per year uh, as far as an NIL deal is concerned. Kid obviously thinks he can come in here and perform, and I know Miami's coaching staff is super, super excited to get him here. What else did I learn at the party? Well, uh, obviously there was a report from Pete Thamel that came out this weekend regarding Zay Flowers and some some money that was offered his way in NIL deals. He was he wasn't in the transfer portal from what I've been told. Miami was interested in Flowers. I think at some point there were some conversations from my understanding. Now, I don't know if they were direct conversations, but they could have been with people around him to see if he was interested. Is that tampering? Sure, by the definition it's tampering, but uh, it's happening everywhere in college football. So while I think uh, you can you can sit here and say, man, what's the NCAA going to do? Are they going to come after Miami? Blah, blah, blah. I think the Hurricanes, like most people, it's going to be really hard to prove any of that tampering is going on or, or any of that stuff is happening. So we'll see. A lot of interesting stories going on besides NIL too, by the way. The ACC, uh, they're doing some new scheduling format. Uh, our Matt Fortune and Andy Staples are up in Amelia Island for the ACC meetings. They wrote about how the ACC on the verge of uh, going to basically three full-time opponents every year and another five that rotate so that everybody in the conference ends up playing one another at least two times, home and away, every four years. I'm actually working on a story with Grace Rayner and Andy Bitter, who cover Clemson and Virginia Tech for us, breaking down what the best matchups are, and, and you know maybe from a TV perspective, and then also also the ones that maintain the longstanding rivalries and the best well-attended games. Uh, for me, I mean, I put together my own list for for every all 14 teams in the ACC who I think they pair up best with. For Miami, I've got them with FSU, Pitt, and Virginia Tech. Uh, those are their sort of longest-running rivalries with teams that play in the ACC. Whether that ends up being the case or not, we'll see. But for now, I think Miami-FSU is a lock beyond that. <laughs> we'll see what the ACC comes up with, what kind of rivalries. BC, Boston College could be another team, I think, that, that Miami ends up with. But 
Well, we're probably uh, uh, maybe a couple weeks away from really finding out what they've got cooking there. But that's an interesting story. Another one that just came out today, our Nicole Auerbach, who I mentioned earlier, she wrote a story about other proposed changes to college football as a whole. One of them is basically eliminating the cap on the number of on-field coaches schools are allowed to have and letting them have as many as they can afford or want. Uh, that's a pretty big deal. Obviously, Miami spent a lot of money on its coaching staff uh, this past year. And we know that Mario has a lot of people around the program right now trying to influence it in a positive way. Uh, that would be something that uh, with, with how much money Miami is spending on coaches uh, would be very interesting to see if that gets adopted over the summer here. And then also the other, the other one was basically eliminating the scholarship limits. Miami's in a situation where, like I said, 83 scholarships. Mario's trying to, you know, fix this roster. That one is really interesting because I don't, I don't know how that's going to come into play with Title IX and, and some other things. But uh, read that Nicole Auerbach story. It's worth your time. Um, just a lot going on overall. Uh, besides the story I'm doing on ACC scheduling, I also got a profile of Ruiz, uh, who was on the Paul Feinbaum show yesterday. I thought he handled himself really well in that interview. People were kind of thinking, well, what's Paul going to ask him? How's this going to end up looking poorly for Miami? I thought he looked good when he when he did his interview. Bruce Feldman and I are also working on a coaching carousel story, sort of recapping what happened with Mario Cristobal, his pursuit of assistant coaches, etc. And, of course, I'm working on Miami State of the Program story, which I believe is set to run June 4th. So a lot going on. I know it's the summertime. You know, I'm not working nearly as hard as maybe I, will, I am during the season. Recruiting still going on, transfer portal still going on, NIL still going on, a lot, lot going on. But today, I really want to get to this Malik Rozier interview. I think there was a lot of interesting topics that we covered back on uh, April 26th when we recorded this. I had gone to watch him coach Tyler Van Dyke and Ja'Curry Brown in person uh, at the indoor practice facility. He also worked with a high school quarterback out of the area here in South Florida who's committed to go to Cal. And uh, I thought it was interesting just talking to him about coaching. You know, what do you do life after football? Uh, you know, he's a guy who obviously lost his starting job at Miami, even though he had a great 2017 season. The fans were rough on him. They wanted him out. We talked a lot about that. What it, you know, the kind of social, you know, pressure that you get from the outside world, friends deleting Twitter for him. Just what life is like as an athlete when, when football ends and how do you have to sort of rediscover who you are as a person. And, and I think Malik's doing a really good job right now surviving kind of the ending for him at Miami. You know, he thought about getting into coaching uh, as a college assistant, went to Georgia, worked over there under Kirby Smart, learned a lot in those in that time there and basically decided he wanted to get into private coaching, which is what he's doing now working for quarterback country. Um, but we talked a lot about Tyler Van Dyke. We talked a lot about his life, uh, Malik's life and, uh, you know, what how, the struggle for athletes. So really interesting interview. I hope you enjoy it. We will be back next week for sure with another episode. Lot, as I said, lots to talk about, a lot going on in the college football world. Talk to you soon. Join today by former Miami Hurricanes quarterback Malik Rozier, uh, turned quarterbacks coach, right? I mean, that's the way I think I should be introducing you now, right, Malik? Yeah, uh, former quarterback. quarterback turns quarterback coach. There you go. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Quarterback coach now. Yeah, I uh, I got a chance to come watch you work on Sunday inside the indoor practice facility. You, you, you invited me. That was very nice of you to do uh, so I could come and watch you work with uh, Tyler Van Dyke and uh, Jakari Brown and um, Antoine Williams, I guess, was the quarterback over at Florida Memorial. He brought a couple of receivers out there, a couple of his teammates. And you guys were in there probably, what, an hour and a half, hour, 15 minutes, just going through basic quarterback drills. And it was really cool to just see how you guys work, what, what the focus is on. And I thought one of the cooler drills 
was when you dragged over that big 200 pound uh, fake lineman, so to speak, <laughs> that they use. They use, uh, you know, the, the speed rushers use to uh, get around when they're doing the combine work and all that. And uh, you, you were you kind of bouncing it off of uh, Tyler Van Dyke and, and Jakari and sort of showing them, hey, this is what it's like when you get hit and you, and you still got to follow through into the football. So many unique little little tools. Let's start with that. Let's start with coaching. Um, what what motivated you to get into it right away? What what what's at the core of this for you? Um, so really two things. Um, one was James Coley, really. So when I was a freshman in college, um, Coley just realized how fast I picked things up. And he was like, hey, like if you ever want to coach, like come back into coaching because I think you'd be really good at it. So from like 18 to 19, I knew that, hey, if I if I didn't know what I was going to do, um, coaching was definitely an option because I had at least college coaches that were telling me, hey, like this might be good for you. Um, and then the older I got, um, the more I realized that's really what I loved um, was just helping out others. So I remember being a junior and senior and helping out Nikosi and Jaren and just feeling like is helping out others and kind of this coaching role. Is, is, is that something that I can do and that I'm good at? And then over time, I just realized that people naturally just like talking to me. And so then from there, I was okay. Like if people like talking to me and I'm able to actually give them something that's useful, then that's how kids were able to actually listen to me and be able to like want to train with me. Um, so really for me, the last, once I finished college, I went to the coaching role on staff in Miami and Georgia. Um, and I learned a lot, but it wasn't what I wanted to learn. Um, so they taught me more about this is how to draw X's and O's. This is how to do this. This is how to, this is what to look for in a prospect. So I learned a ton of like, what to look for, what are the prototypical styles, like what college coaches look for. But what I wasn't learning was like, hey, if this is his flaw, this is how to fix it. Hey, if 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 his foot comes off the ground, this is why we keep it connected. Hey, if he's leaning too much, this is how to stabilize it. So that's what really why I got out of coaching kind of in that college world and uh, during QB country was because I knew David was really smart, at least in like the QB technique. And that's really what I've been learning. So as you can tell, like some of that stuff is, is I would say even newer to me is stuff that I've learned over the last two years between like balancing and back ankle. Um, that's really helped me learn how to one, be a better quarterback so I can trade others to be better quarterback. So that's like the biggest thing that's really helped me and, and really pushed me to where I've got now is just learning from different coaches, whether it's like X's and O's from like the college coaches or more fundamentals technique from like David Morris and QB country. Yeah. And, and, you know, let's, let's give people a timeline just to sort of refresh their memory as we, as we hit this, but essentially, you know, 2017, you replace Brad Kaya as the starter at Miami, the only quarterback since Miami joined the ACC to lead them to double digit victories. That is a feather in your cap, my brother. <laughs> uh, and, yeah. and, and so you, you, you play that year, lead them to a 10 and three record. I know you guys didn't finish the way you, you wanted to, and we'll talk about all that in a minute, but um, you know, you, you, you end up leaving Miami after the 2018 season. I think you had a tryout with the Dolphins, right? Uh, Agreed. Yeah, with the Dolphins. And uh, and then right after that, when the playing, when you basically knew, OK, this is it for me. Take us through the timeline. Where did you end up first? Was it, uh, you know, with Coach Coley? Was it right at Miami? Take us through kind of. Step yeah, step. so um, I actually was supposed to get surgery on my shoulder. Um, I had some CFL teams that really reached out to me. Um, and obviously as a kid, like there's nothing against the CFL, but I think every kid, at least in America, dreams of playing in the NFL. Um, so for my biggest thing, um, at least for me, it was like, okay, do I want to spend these next five years really chasing a dream, which I love, you know what I mean? I've been playing football since I was five. 
or do I want to chase something that's more sustainable and successful that, hey, in the next five years, I'll build a legacy that like my kids can carry on. Um, and so that's really what really motivated and pushed me to like kind of get out of the playing role and get more into the coaching. So then once I finished with the Dolphins, um, I went on staff in Miami. So I was with um, Coach Diaz. Um, it was fun. I definitely learned some different stuff. I know that um, I was in the recruiting role. So I learned a lot about recruiting, looking at prospects, what is film breakdown. I remember I, I was having to make cut up tapes of like kids highlights for the coach. So I learned kind of that aspect, um, but I wanted to be a little more hands-on. So then that's kind of when I left, went to Georgia. Um, and then I learned a whole new, new different aspect of like coaching um, a little more involved with like the meetings. I was able to like sit inside the coaching staff meetings, learn more game plan. Cause when you're a quarterback, like, you see it from a game plan aspect, but you see it more as like you as being a player. When you're from coaching, you see it as like, hey, like, what are all my players' strengths? Okay, now how do I like incorporate all their strengths to like this team's weaknesses? So it's like I saw a little bit of different strategy from like the Georgia side, which was very cool to see. Um, but like I said earlier, like I I was working more with um, Todd Hartley at that point. So I did a lot of recruiting for Munkin. I was Munkin's direct recruiter. But at least like in the meetings, um, there was a lot of guys that were – um, like helping quarterbacks. You had like Todd Munkin, you had Buster Faulkner, you had Ryan Williams, who like all those guys were like their quarterback guys. So I knew the room was filled. So I was like, how do I plug in so I can get a GA job? So that's kind of where I went under Todd Hartley's wing. And I, I learned a lot about tight ends, receivers, learned a lot. It's, 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 it's crazy because as much as you learn about quarterbacks, when you see it from a receiver standpoint, it, the whole view changes of how they see stuff. So kind of being able to see stuff from a tight end receiver's point of view has helped me at least from like explaining quarterbacks, like, Hey, this is where they want the ball placement. This is why they want the ball placement. So kind of learning that aspect. So like these kids know, Hey, on this route, you need a body, a tight end instead of leading him. So kind of just incorporating things that I've learned along the lines from the last three or four years. So you did that at Georgia and then you ended up going to QB country right after that. What year was that? Was that a couple years ago? Um, yeah, I would say last year. So I was, I was on staff with Georgia two years ago. So last year, yeah. You just missed the ring. That's got to be. Yeah, like I know. I was on fourth question. <laughs> I, I was upset. You know, I had, uh, I knew all the players. So um, actually, Rayshon Scott, Ryan Williams, some of the guys I played with at Miami were on staff. And so they were sending me pictures of the rings and stuff. And yeah, I was a little salty. I was like, you know, if I'd have hung on one more year, I would have had them. But I mean, I'm glad with my decision. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely excited for those kids. Um, those Georgia kids definitely busted their ass for that ring. So, I mean, it was definitely well-deserved. Um, but it does suck. <laughs> it definitely sucks. You you were uh you were able to see what it was like for them to build a champion, really, when you think about it. You were there for what two years. Uh, so you got to see the recruiting aspect of it. Uh they they were coming off of losing the national championship not too long before that to Alabama. So uh, you know, it took them a couple of years to get back. And when they did, they obviously cashed in. When you look at the Miami program now, and I don't know how much time you're you're around them, but you look at Mario Cristobal taking over. He obviously is an Alabama guy, right? He went through Nick Saban's system. Um, a lot of those Georgia guys did as well on that coaching staff. Um, where do you see Miami compared to Georgia right now? Um, I would say that this is probably one of the first staffs in a very long time, at least from like an experienced coaching staff. Like they can they can compete with the Georgia. Um, and you put up pedigrees like Georgia has some of the best. You know, it was it was. What I can say, one thing that was really cool about being at Georgia was there were position coaches that were ex-head coaches. You know, we had guys like Matt Luke. We had guys like Todd Monk. Like, all those guys were head coaches at one point. 
And, you know, um, now you kind of see that same trend now at Miami. You know, we have Charlie Strong that was an ex-head coach. You have some of these other guys that they've been the top dog. So it's cool because whenever you have guys like that, I mean, it's very unfortunate, but most of the time those guys don't want to stay at the university. I know a lot of fans don't want to hear that, but like guys like Charlie Strong will probably at most be there three to five years. Mm -hmm. So the reason why I say that's a good thing is because those guys are going to coach 10 times harder because they want to get out of They're hungry. You know what I mean? So they're going to make that team that much better. So they can, you know, like you look at a lot of Georgia guys, like they're there, but now look at them. You know, you got Dan, Dan Lanning, that's at Oregon. You're going to have some of those other guys in the next couple of years. They're all going to start shooting out left and right, going to be head coaches. But that's a good thing because if you have a coach that's satisfied, then they're never going to make the kids better. When you have coaches that are hungry, that say, Hey, like this is one spot for me to become greater they're going to push those kids to become greater as well because they know my basically rise is on these kids. So kind of like a different aspect was, was it was very cool. Cause you know, for a long time, I've always thought that you want coaches that want to stay. And obviously you want coaches that love university, but at the end of the day, you want a coach that said, Hey, like this is just a stop for me to become great because I'm here at Alabama, Georgia, wherever, but I'm trying to make this place great. And so I, I think that was the biggest difference was seeing coaches that, um, definitely understood their role, but that they knew they had a bigger purpose and just, hey, I'm just a tight ends coach. I want to be a head coach. So I got to show Kirby Smart every day that I can be a head coach. So when someone, another AD or someone calls that Kirby says, yes, like I'm working X, Y, and Z. So things like that was was definitely cool to see. Um, and at least for me being a recruiter, it made me work harder um, just because I knew, hey, if I could get Matt Luke to like me, then I might go be the QBGA at, at, at Ole Miss next year or wherever he goes to be the head coach. So kind of that aspect was cool, at least in the building, because like it made competition at least like there, if that makes sense. Because a lot yeah. of some, some universities, I would say, like, you know, the coach is going to be there for 10, 15 years. You know, the offensive coordinator are going to be there for forever. So you don't know if you're going to get a chance. The way you actually grow in this kind of industry is when you have a coach that leaves and he's like, hey, like I like Malik Rose when he was at Georgia, his work. I'm going to bring him with me. So at least from that aspect, from a recruiter, it was very like unique and cool to see that like a lot of these guys that were in this building were top dogs. And I think that's where Miami's at now, that they have a lot of guys inside that building that they don't have to be position coaches, but they chose to be like some of those guys could possibly be head coaches in the next two to three years, which is very good for us. Um, and that's kind of what you want is a system that only spits out NFL players, but spits out head coaches in the college. And that's kind of what I think Mario Cristobal is going to build the next three to five years is you're going to see some head coaches come out of the staff, which is going to be unfortunate. They're going to be hard to replace, but it's a good thing because you know, that's the kind of talent level that Miami requires, at least from a coaching aspect. You, you know, the fans, uh, us in the media on the outside, we, we obviously don't see all the hard work that you guys put in and, ha- and how difficult it is to get a team to sort of come together. You, you were the leader of that 2017 or one of the leaders of that 2017 team that um, that won a whole lot of games and was able to come together. What, what was the magic mix that, that you think propelled you guys because coaching plays a big part in it right you got to have the good coaches you got to have the right scheme but then you need player buy-in uh it all has to come together um when you when you think back to that season what was it that made it magical what was it that, that lifted you guys to, to having the success that you did um i would just say like never i mean one i would say beating florida state honestly um i mean you most of miami fans know there i mean there have been years i remember watching Stephen Morris and them, whenever they were like 8-0, when they were really good, 7-0, whatever it was, <clears throat> we played Florida State, we lose, and like the whole season just tanked. Um, right. So I think the first thing for us was just, you know, a lot of people, I don't want to say a lot of people ran from it, but I mean, we knew around Miami that we had to beat Florida State. So like our first goal was like, no matter what the season goes, like we're beating them this year. Like like the drought was too long. 
And I think kind of once we got over that hump, um, I think that really let us know like, hey, like we can do this. Um, and then from there, it was kind of like that resilience of saying, hey, like we've, we've done something that we haven't done in the last, what was it, eight to 10 years, whatever it was, seven years. Um, so let's keep this going. Let's now go to the ACC championship. And I think that was kind of it was <clears throat> understanding that we had a good team, but not letting everything else around us really affect us. Because Miami is a city that, it, I mean, honestly, it has really high highs and really low lows. Like when you're winning, the city loves you. You're great. Like they'll do anything for you. When you're losing, no one shows up, no one comes out. So it's, it's kind of finding that neutral point. And the good news was <clears throat> a lot of the guys that played were older guys. So they knew, you know what I mean? Like we've been through terrible seasons and it was like, okay, now that we're winning, let's be able to keep the success. Let's like not let this become a drug where like it's kind of what happened towards the end where like everything started to kind of tell off, like kind of keeping that steady um, fighter. That's the big thing I tell Tyler is um, winning is hard no matter who you play, whether it's North Carolina, whether it's Duke or whether it's some random like team like Southern Miss. Um, and winning at a consistent level is hard because um, it's – I mean, some people have bad days. There's definitely been days where I've had terrible games. And it's like having people around you that you can rely on to really pick you up when you have a, a one bad outing or one bad Saturday is like the biggest thing. So I know there were plenty of times when like I would have like DJ Dallas or Braxton Barris or someone either talk to me or one like pull me out. Like I remember there was a couple of times when I literally knew it was a bad coverage, but I threw it to Braxton anyways because I knew he was going to win that matchup. So, I mean, like having guys like that, like it doesn't really matter. Like I, I have trust in them. And that's something that I think Tyler is really going to have to find this year is kind of who's your safety valve, who is. And I think it's going to be Xavier Restrepo. I mean, that kid's been balling. He reminds me a lot of Braxton Bears, the way he plays um, and kind of having that that one or two guys that you have really good chemistry with that. Like it doesn't matter what coverage you run. We're so connected that I can throw this right with my eyes closed. So kind of building that, and I think that they're doing that, and I think this, this team will be very good, especially having a good defense. Um, that definitely helped us. That defense played lights out. The turnover chain helped. Um, I mean, I say that offense wins games, but defenses win championships. So I think the defense that they're building is going to be crazy at Miami this year as well. So many different ways I want to go with this because you, you, you said so much there that, that is interesting. I, let's start with this because we, we talk about the topic of the fans, and then we'll get back in the, into the football. But – you talked about the highs and the lows as, as a reporter. I mean, we, we deal with all the time, the social media uh, people, you know, the negativity from the fans who just jump on you, you know, if you have a bad game or wh whatever it is, um, how, I mean, coaches always say, well, we don't pay attention to that. We block out the noise, right? That's the famous saying we block out the noise, <laughs> but I got to imagine on the real Malik, like all of that gets through to you. Right. I mean, at some point it's just hard to ignore when people are, are making it personal about you. Yeah, um, I would say for me, the biggest thing was I never really cared, at least when people attacked me, like like it is what it is. Um, mm -hmm. For me, it was more when like my sister and like fans would get into it. That's when I would get more riled up um, because my sister is someone like she's going to protect me. Sometimes I tell her, hey, you got to relax um, because like they're just fans. You know what I mean? Like they're like they're going to be emotional, like they have the right to be. Um, but I think that was some of the, the hardest parts for me was just um, dealing with fans. I know there was a couple of points where like um, – I can't, I, we played LSU and we lost. And I remember like Travis Homer taking my phone and I think he deleted like 500 messages. And he was like, probably like 16 of them were like death threats. And I think that's going to be the wildest part is now with sports gambling being added to these college sports. And, you know, there's a lot of people that are definitely addicted. Um, how do you really protect the mental side of some of these athletes? Because at the end of the day, like some of these kids are 18, 19 years old and they're out there just playing a sport they love. They're not dropping $10,000 on a, on a football game. And I've had, I've had people literally thank me saying like, we beat Florida state. I had people thank me saying, Hey, you just won me $10,000 because you finally beat Florida state. 
It's like, I know people are gambling on our games. So it's like, if we do lose or a kid has have a bad game, how does a kid understand that that guy, I'm not saying doesn't necessarily mean what he's saying, but his words doesn't affect you. Because one thing I can say is that, the, yes, a lot of coaches do say that don't listen to the noise, that the noise is outside. But when the noise is constant and it's always there, it's kind of hard not to at least let it seep in every once in a while. Um, so that's one thing that I'm really preaching and that I, I, I really tell my athletes when we train is like, understand social media because it can either be a weapon that can help you or be something that can cripple you. Cause seriously, like it, it's very popular. Everyone uses it. Everyone's addicted to it. So it's about understanding that a lot of people on there are really just trolls and that like, as long as you focus on yourself, you'll be fine. So there was times definitely for me that I definitely let social media get to me. Um, I let people get to me and it's like teaching them from my mistakes saying, Hey, like don't respond. Hey, if you need to, like, I know Stetson Ben did the best. He deleted his social media. They didn't even have it. You know what I mean? Just, hey, y'all don't matter. So I'm not even going to give you guys a chance to make any noise. Like, if y'all are going to talk, you know, talk to my face. And most, I would say, 99.9% of fans would never say anything to any of the college athletes' face, just to be real. But they say it over social media. So it's like, hey, if I delete that now, and so that's some stuff that, like, I've learned saying, hey, like, you do have problems with letting it get to you. Figure out ways to just delete it completely. Just have it during the offseason. During the season, delete it. Pick it back up during the offseason. So it's like kind of learning those different tactics that can help some of these kids in the future. Because like I said, I think with college sports betting, it's going to get worse and worse. Social media is obviously getting bigger and bigger. It's not going anywhere. So it's really teaching them how to adapt in different ways saying, Hey, like if it does affect you just delete it and, and tell them, Hey, like they don't really matter because honestly, most people that have been in your shoes will not talk to you the way that they are because we understand. I mean, like I would never downplay any quarterback whether he has a good or a bad game because I've had a bad game. So I've been there. So it's like, Instead of me beating him up, it's like, how do we learn from this? And I think that's the biggest thing is that if you're, I don't want to say good in life, but if you want to win in life, like everyone loses. Like you talk to anybody that's ever been great. You know what I mean? Denzel Washington is, people told him, no, he's failed different stuff. But it's like the fact that they got up and learned from that. And that's the biggest thing I teach my kids is when you have a, when, when you lose or something goes bad, you should learn more from that than any victory. Obviously learn, be happy, but your losses are where you have your biggest leaps in life in general, because you'll learn from those mistakes. So teaching them kind of that aspect is don't let a loser basically make you feel like a loser. Seriously. That's what it is. Like losers try to make other people feel like losers. So it's like, if you talk to a winner, a winner, they've had losses. So it's like the thing, biggest thing is, is how they responded to that loss. And so that's kind of what I teach. It's fascinating to me because this is the aspect that that is kind of always hidden, right? Like we don't talk about these things and we just let it sort of permeate where, you know, you guys are human beings in, in the end, right? You, you, you want to be connected. You want to you want to feel good about yourself. And sometimes people just don't let you like that. It's the way social media is. It just it can affect you. You've seen guys really affected by it. Um, you know, you can share what you want, uh, Malik. But what, 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 would, what would you say from a human standpoint was the toughest moment for you? Um, you know, at Miami with social media and fans and reaction. And, and maybe have you seen other guys where it really severely affected them where they never recovered? Yeah. Um, I would say for me, um, the hardest, the one, the one gut check, I would say gut check, but the one thing I, I really, really struggled with was I remember my junior year, I took a lot of hits, especially like social media, which it, it didn't really bother me. Um, but then I remember my senior year, because so my junior year almost came out. Rick wanted me to stay um, just because I knew there was a lot of tension between like Rick and the fans. A lot of fans wanted Nikosi to play, which I was fine with. Knowing, like, Nikosi was a hell of an athlete. I, I still train Nikosi now. It's like me and him have a great relationship. So I was like, do I want to stay here or I want to take kind of this? Cause I've seen guys do it. They have the one 
pretty good year, they leave and they get drafted really late or do something. So I was like, I have my game film. I I show that I can throw touchdowns. Obviously, um, I, I can make plays. So it was like, do I leave? They convinced me to stay. And then after the LSU game, we took a lot of hits. Well, I took a lot of hits. That's when Travis Holman deleted all my social media. And like, I was calling the edge, like, damn, like, am I good enough to actually play here or not? And then whenever I got benched, it was like now all like everything that they said, I felt like everything they said was like right about me, that I wasn't good enough, that I shouldn't have been here, that like I should have transferred. And it just came over and over and over. And I think for me, that was the biggest point to where it was like I had to pull myself out of that. Um, And it's something that sucks, but it's like at least for me, it was hard dealing because I didn't want to tell anyone about it. Because obviously, like my best friends are Travis Homer. Braxton, but like those guys are starting. So it's like, how do I burden my best friends with someone? I know how a burden of a season is. So I think the biggest thing is for some of these athletes that like are dealing with that, they're saying like, Hey, like, I know I'm good enough, but just between social media or whatever you're dealing with, you don't know, find that one person, whether it's like a family member or something that you can talk to, because sometimes like you want to talk to your friends, even your closest friends, but it's hard because they're dealing with the other stuff. Like they have their lives, they have school, they're dealing with football. They have the same workouts as you do. So it's like, kind of finding that one person. Obviously, um, I got I got lucky and found someone named Millie that really helped me through it um, while I was there because I was definitely down on myself just because, like, I let everything that everyone said obviously affect me. Um, but the biggest thing I can say is just, like, believing in yourself. And, and it is hard, you know. Like, I've done a lot of – watching a lot of motivational podcasts, and they always talk about, you know, when you're trying to make it, no one's there for you. Then when you make it, everyone's going to judge you. And so it's kind of like that, that same saying is, like, just put your head back down, get to work. It doesn't matter what anyone says, because most of the time people aren't going to be with you while you're working anyways. So that's kind of like what I had to do is rewire my brain saying, hey, you're fine. Like, just put your head down, find something else that you love and keep working. And so that's kind of what I've done. I've been very passionate about quarterbacks. And so um, now I'm just training and I really, really enjoy it. Yeah, I'm glad you found your, your happy place. But I've seen so many of these sad stories. There's, in fact, I just saw a report recently. I think there was a a track and field or cross country runner, I think from Wisconsin who committed suicide. Some of these athletes don't, I mean, it, they can get to some pretty dark places. It's hard. You know, I, I'm gonna say this weirdly. So I had a, I had an old um, coach named coach Skoda and he talked about natural highs and I never got it. Like I seriously never got it. Um, And then when I lost football, I got it. Um, So what I mean was, so whenever there, there are certain things in life, whether it's like skydiving, whether it's swimming, for me, it was football. So what, whatever, whatever makes you high naturally, whatever like gives off a crazy amount of dopamines or, or endorphins. And that's kind of what football was. For me. It was my natural. Like I didn't need drugs. I still don't need drugs. But it's like I didn't need anything. Like if I was at football, no one was going to take my piece if I was sitting on the field. And it was kind of like when I lost that, it was finding another natural high. And for now, it's, it's quarterbacks for me. You know what I mean? Now it's me helping out others. It's like when I'm out on the field coaching Tyler Van Dyke, like nothing else in the world matters. Seriously, nothing else matters. No one else matters, but me and my quarterbacks that are out. So it's like, I found again, that natural high. And a lot of athletes don't know how to find that. or don't know where to find that. And I feel like that's the biggest problem. There's that old saying that like athletes die twice. And it's like, once you're done being an athlete, who are you seriously? Um, And so that's kind of, I'm actually making a program to kind of help that um, in the near future. Um, But it's just really about making these kids understand that, yes, you're an athlete, but that's just a part of you. That's not everyone who you are, you know, because like for me, I've met multiple businessmen and there's not one businessman that only owns one job or only does one thing. There's like they do one, two, three, four, five. They, there's multiple things they do. And so it's kind of teaching these guys the same thing. Like, you know, I, I think Al Blaze is the best example. Like, yes, Al Blaze, you are a football player. 
but you're also a Twitch streamer. So like if Al Blaze was to drop football, he would still be fine because he knows who he is outside of football. Same thing with Amari Carter. Like Amari Carter is a great football player, but he knows he's a businessman. He does. He has his own nonprofit that he's running. So it's like giving these kids something else that's like, hey, like football isn't your only sole option or sports is your only sole option for the rest of your life. You can do X, Y, and Z. That'll still make you happy. You'll still make money. And so it's just really reworking their brain because I feel like that's half the problem is even me. Like I knew the only way I was ever going to go to college was playing football. That was it. Like I, we didn't have money to pay for college. It was either you're playing sports, or you're going to go to a look with you or something. So it was like a lot of these kids are in the same roles. Like once they lose sports, they feel like they lost everything. So it's like teaching them, no, you lost a part of your life, but that's not who like your entire life is. So it's kind of teaching them just reworking their brain in different aspects. So it's definitely a, uh, a tough subject because you see more and more athletes coming out about CTE and, and, and mental health stuff. So I know it's definitely been a, uh, a worry for athletes. Do you guys, I mean, I, I talked to Kelvin Harris quite a bit and he played at Miami. He was the center for uh, Gino Toretta back in uh, 91 and when they won the national championship. And, you know, he talks about how there's this text message thread. And one thing I hear from all the old players is, yeah, we're still connected. You know, I, I go to these get togethers that they have all the old. And yet I don't see a lot of young guys that have that bond. I don't see a lot of the most recent canes who mm-hmm. have those text threads who talk. I had one, uh, former coach who I guess owns a house uh, and has four players living in it um, who says, you know, I, I go in and knock on the door and I ask them, Hey, what are you guys doing? It's like, they're all independent. They're all by themselves. Um, Malik, what, why, why isn't there maybe more of a bond between the guys and maybe the last 10 years, 15 years at Miami compared to the old guys? I feel like the old guys have a much stronger bond. And I see you shaking your head saying, yeah. Yeah. Um, honestly, I don't know. That's, that's been something that's been weird for me too. I, I mean, I would just say, I think a lot of it just had to do with, I mean, it's unfortunate. I think a lot of it just had to do with status. Um, so at least for me, like, I'm still cool with a lot of my NFL buddies, like, you know, Braxton, David, Brad, I, I still talk to all of them. But I do notice that a lot of them gravitate more towards people that they play with now currently in the NFL than they do like, hey, I'm going to go hang out with one of my Miami friends. Well, there's, well, there's, there's like nothing wrong with that. Um, but I think that's just the way that it's gravitating. And I think... So that's it's crazy. You talk about that. That's the reason why I'm actually trying to um, I'm actually working on a project with a couple of business partners. But I'm trying to do stuff where we can kind of have that camaraderie at, and, and do more in real life events where like I'll get with some business partners. We'll host like big dinners. And then what we'll do is we'll invite any alumni back that kind of want to get together and regroup. Because I think that's the hardest thing is like, OK, if we do want to text, where do we go? What do we do? And then speaking for some of them, like who has the money to pay for some of these nice restaurants? Because you have guys that are being in the league. And then you have guys that work nine to five. And it's like the guys that work in the league aren't going to want to eat where the guys nine to five is. The guys nine to five might not want to go to STK or some expensive restaurant to eat at. So it's kind of like finding that middle gap where like I can give with some business partners. We can find some good ways to really do some like Miami alumni networking and different things like that. So that's something that I've definitely been working on. And um, I definitely want to bring back kind of that close knit like family to really help each other out again. Yeah, I think it would help you guys on the field. And I think it would help you in life dealing with some of these issues, like you said, we know the history. I mean, I, I've chronicled it for, for 25 years, being a reporter down here, living it, being a fan when I was a kid going to the Orange Bowl. You know, the guys back in the day, all, all of them made it to the NFL. Now, you know, it's only a handful of you guys every year. Exactly. So that's what I mean. A lot of the league guys, yeah. I mean, the league, they, and, and even now, like, you know, like I know David and Brax and all those guys, like the NFL guys, they all bunch together. But like, if you didn't make it, um, obviously for me, I'm, I'm fortunate enough that we're all still cool, but I know a lot of guys that like, they did make it. And it's not that the NFL guys feel like they're better, but it's like, naturally you hang out who you're around all the time. So if I'm in the league, 
I'm probably more around Shredrick Redmond because we're going to be training at Bomberitos, the name Daryl Langham. That's a firefighter. There's nothing wrong with Daryl Langham, but it's like, okay, how do we bridge now when David's back and how do we get Daryl and David back together? Right. Um, so kind of doing events like that where like, hey, you don't have to come, but you know, you might not know who's going to show up. Like Daryl Langham might show up, David Njoku, um, Brad Caillou, and Brad Lee, but just kind of getting some other guys that I played with and even guys before after me that, that want to come back and really just network and kind of just be around each other again is what um, I'm trying to build. Have a lot of, and I don't, I, you don't have to throw any names. I don't want to throw anybody under the bus, but have there been any guys that you know of that have had a really hard time, as you say, dying twice, right? That when that, when that career dies, just dealing with life, you know, after football. Um, Not that I know of. I know um, there was a current kid, not at Miami, but there was one kid that I trained that um, he kind of had it like that. I'm not going to say his name, but he kind of bounced around from different colleges. Um, and that was kind of his thing was that I don't know if I'm a quarter, not enough, but I don't know if I'm good enough. And it was really just like we work in his brain because one thing I could say is about playing sports in general, it's all about confidence. Like once you lose it, you lose it, especially at, at the higher the level, the more confidence you got to have in yourself because people move faster. Decisions happen faster. That slight um, indecision will like change the game or change the aspect of the sport. Um, so I think it's, it's really just about, even if you do have a hard time um, mentally, just finding out who you are as a person and really just rebuilding yourself. Cause it, cause it, cause it happens, man. And you know, whenever I lost my job, it was really hard for me to get back in. Like I remember even when I went back to starting, it was still hard mentally for me to become the starter again, because it was like, I felt like half the team wanted me, half of them didn't. I felt like most of the fans wanted to coach me. Most of them didn't want me. So it was just like, it happens, but it, it, it's something that mentally you just got to push through. And, and yes, I've, I've, I've had some kids that have, that have had that. And it's hard because everyone's situation is different. Everyone feels differently. Everyone has a different background. So it's like figuring out why they feel that way and really like eliminate it. Cause most of the time it's not the school. There's usually some type of past history or like some type of consistent, Hey, this is a consistent negative. Like for me, it was Twitter. Like I had to get off Twitter at one point cause it was constantly negative. So it was like, I had to take that out to understand that I need a peace of mind. And that's really what it is. It's, making these kids find peace because in sports, especially college sports, you're going to run around like a madman. And it's going to be a lot of times whenever you're between workout, the sport itself and the classes, there's going to be no peace. And it's really about helping them find that so they can figure out, Hey, I can do this. I feel like myself. And that's the, Cause that's the biggest thing. When you talk to a lot of kids, whenever they're going something mentally, they always say, I don't feel like myself. And most of the time it's because they have no peace. There's a hundred things going on and they're not able to sit down and breathe and say, Hey, what do I actually want to do with my life? And so, like, that's that's the biggest thing I've been trying to help these kids out with is just really finding their, like, peace and different things like that. And it's, uh, it's important work. I think the mental aspect of it is uh, is probably underrated or, or not talked about enough. Of it's the- not. And 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 even for the guys, like, my, that's that's one of my biggest things. Like, even for the guys that played quarterback that are training quarterbacks, like, you you have to prep these kids. And I, and I would say I'm fortunate enough that I played in the last, like, eight to nine years, so I kind of understand how intense it's getting. But it's going to get worse and worse. There's more social media platforms coming out. That, like I said, there's more gambling coming out. <clears throat> so really preparing these kids for saying, hey, like there's going to be negativity, whether you're good or not. Like dude, Someone's going to hate you. And honestly, you should embrace the hate because if someone's hating you, it means you're doing the right thing most of the time. So it's really just about letting them understand that not everyone's going to have your back. And because it's it's different because I, I would say to me, I was from a very small, small town. So like everyone was supportive. And then going to Miami, it was like it was split. So it's teaching them to that just to embrace the hate and then love the love. So, mm-hmm. yeah, use it, use it, use it in a positive way, I guess, in the, in the grand scheme of things. Um, 
So you, you've you've done the coaching now for a couple of years. What is the the end game? I and mean, you're working with this this quarterback uh, academy, as you said, uh, training guys. Uh, you mentioned in, you're based out of Tampa. You told me that the other day. Um, and and you know you've, you I guess you kind of go all over the map. But what what is the big play for you long term? You, you got a taste of the college life. You've seen the recruiting. Um, what do you what do you see yourself maybe in five or ten years? Um, I don't know honestly. Um. I honestly think I would love to get back into coaching, but I mean, it would have to be a pretty good check. Um, uh, outside that, I, I love the private coaching. Um, I really enjoy it. And two, for me, um, you really get an understanding of who the kids are. Cause sometimes whenever you're coaching, you're only there for such a short period of time. A lot of times for me, I'm able to like take these kids out to dinner after, or like we'll go hang out or like the mom and dad will say, Hey, do you want to come over here and have fish and whatever? I'll make you dinner. So like, I think it's a different form of getting to know these kids. Um, and plus we do a lot of NFL training. So I think that's kind of a cool aspect too, um, is like the NFL prep work, which I really enjoy. Um, but I'm, like I said, I'm very content with what I do. Like if I could build this up and basically make quarterback country, the biggest like quarterback development group in the state of Florida, like that's my goal. And then if someone comes along with some crazy like coaching deal that like, I'm like, yes, like I, I want to go, then I can't turn the money down. Then I'll go. Um, but outside of that, I mean, I'm making pretty good money. The company's definitely growing. And I think in the next four to five years, I'll have probably about three to four NFL guys that are either be starting or somewhere in the NFL. So it's like, that's kind of my goal to at least have, cause you know, right now we have eight. So QB country has eight NFL starters. Um, we're hoping to add another, at least one to two. I know this year we have Sam Howell coming out from North Carolina. Um, but that's kind of my plan is to really build up my own list of like QB country NFL guys from the state of Florida. Talk, talk about QB country, because I don't know enough about it. Educate me a little bit. Who's who kind of runs it? And, and you mentioned the eight NFL quarterbacks that are involved. Uh, just give me an education on it. Yeah. So um, David Morris is the head of QB country. Um, so I David based in Mobile. That's where the headquarters is. And um, when I was a junior, I was fortunate enough for David to find me through some recruiting stuff. Um, and he had the right connection. He's actually the reason why James Coley found me. Um, so I remember he asked me what my favorite school was. I told him Miami. Um, he was like, okay. I think you got enough potential. I don't know if, if it is in Miami, but I can at least get the guy down here to come see you. James Coley flew in. It was storming, raining, like, cause Mobile was, um, I think at that time it was the rainiest city, um, in the country. So it rained almost every day. Um, and luckily Coley was used to the rain for being from South Florida. So he still stood out there in the rain. We threw in the rain. Um, and he, he, he was like, I've never seen someone throw in the rain that well, which I can say, I, I, that's probably the best throw I've ever thrown in my life. Like it was, it was, it was actually pretty cool. Um, so he offered me and then obviously went to Miami, but David really got a lot of his kicks from, um, Eli Manning. So David was Eli's backup in college. Um, and then when Eli went to the pros, David basically was like, hey, like, I want to train quarterbacks now. So he did some other work, but then he started training quarterbacks, started learning from Eli, Peyton, and Cutcliffe. So those are the three big guys that, like, he still is in a lot of communication with. I know we, we do a lot of stuff with the Manning Passing Academy um, with, like, the only organization that has multiple coaches out there. Um, so that's kind of where he got started was with the Mannings. Like, they do their NFL prep work with us. So we have Eli um i'm pretty sure peyton does some stuff i know this year we added uh philip rivers so he's right down south of us probably like 45 minutes from us so he's gonna do some nfl prep work with us um our nfl quarterbacks are um mac jones davis mills um daniel jones i know we have um nick mullins that plays for the 49ers um if you go on qbcountry.com they have like a big list you know like aj mccarran and other guys like that that have played 
Um, but and that's they all, and they all work with kids, at training them and teaching them. No, so okay. no, so they come in for their own private sessions. They don't gotcha. work with kids with us. Um, okay. We actually started this camp where we'll have you guys come in. So because we're in Mobile um, and the Senior Bowl is there, actually every year before the Senior Bowl, we actually started doing these like QB country Senior Bowl events where like kind of the mental part plays in like, like a big thing. Cause that's one thing, like we also want to teach you the physical aspect, but the mental part also plays a huge role. So having these kids in front of some of these um, college seniors, like I know when we had it, we had Sam Howell come out and talk to the kids and they were able to ask him questions about like, what do you think about this? Or what do you do there? Or how do you respond to that? Um, so just kind of helping them build mentally and then giving them something to look forward to. So that's like one of my biggest things is that I want to be able to develop NFL quarterbacks. So when I have a middle school come up to me and say, Hey, this is who I've developed. This is who you can look up to and kind of, those kind of roles. Um, but yeah, QB country has been, it's been great. Um, we've expanded into a pretty sure eight states. So Florida, Tennessee, Georgia, Alabama, Texas, New Jersey, North Carolina. And I'm pretty sure there's one more state. I know we're supposed to be in Louisiana, um, but we're slowly growing. Um, I would say, I think we have last year, we had every starter in the state of Alabama besides Bryce Young. Um, I know, um, uh Stetson Bennett trains with us in QB country so we have we have a lot of kids um and I, and I what's crazy is I think most of our talent is our younger talent and that's the craziest part that we have like we train pay uh not Peyton Manning Eli Manning not Eli Arch Manning sorry Arch Manning okay. Arch, yeah Arch train Arch um who's number one for 2023 we have Jaden Davis number one for 2024 we have Ty Simpson number one who's a five-star um that at Bama, um, we have the kid that's going to or no, he's at South Carolina now, Tanner Bailey. Um, but our list goes on and on. Um, I would say that they do a great job of development, but it's it's all fundamentals, and that's really why I went there was because I saw the quarterbacks they were putting in the league. I saw how fundamentally sound they were. I was like, okay, like if David can teach them how to be that, he can definitely teach me how to teach them how to do that. Um, so I went to QB country for about a month after I finished with um Georgia. And basically, whenever Davis Mills and Mac Jones did their um, NFL prep work in Mobile, I was out there every day with them. So, like, I saw the way that he taught them mentally. I saw the board work. I saw the fundamentals. I saw the weight room. So I kind of got a full grasp, like, everything that he was teaching. Um, and so then from there, I'm just teaching it over here. But, yeah, I love QB country. Um, the guys are great. I would say everyone inside the company. That's one thing that I, that I really like about it. So, like, even if a kid was here in Florida with me, I play this. Jerry Williams is one. Jaron trained me in Florida. He moved to Bama. He's still with QB country. Now he trains either Birmingham or Huntsville. So it's like, even that's such cool things where even if a kid goes to college in a different state, he can still get the same coaching throughout our different um, locations, which is really cool, which is what I love. Um, so I think it just, it just helps kids. Cause one thing that I struggled with was when I got here, um, there was no Florida QB country coach. So like, I didn't know who to train with, honestly. Um, a lot of times it was me training by myself. I remember there was times where me and Brad were training each other in a, freaking volleyball court literally like in the volleyball sand court me and brad over there training each other but it's like now like i tell kids hey like if you're in florida you train with me if you're in north carolina you're going to boone if you're in alabama there's two so it's like keeping them with a trainer that like because there are good trainers in florida but i mean at least when i was there a lot of them were were very taxing so it's like our prices are pretty good and like we know what we're talking about so it's like giving kids the ability to train even once they go past college i know that was a spot for me i was in mobile i had a trainer i left mobile i had no one in florida so it's like now we're bigger and now we're able to like, hey, any state you go to basically in the South, like we have you covered, which is which is a pretty cool concept to think about. Yeah. I, I, besides um, 
Tyler and Jacari and Antoine, who, who's the quarterback at, at Florida Memorial. I saw you working out with the, the, the boy from Columbus who's headed to Miami Columbus High School, uh, Fernando Mendoza, uh, right, who's going to uh, Cal, his younger yeah. brother as well. Um, yeah, yeah, so how many kids are you working with now? Who are some of the other ones that uh, maybe um, I don't know about? So I have Brooks Bentley, that's at, um He just moved to Venice, so his dad is actually the um, – quarterbacks coach at uh, not quarterback coach receivers coach at South Florida uh, coach Bentley um I have a kid named Kel that's a freshman I have a small group of kids in Naples I don't really claim them um one thing about me is that I don't I don't like when quarterbacks claim my quarterbacks nor will I ever claim someone else's um so there's a couple of kids down south in Naples like a group of like five or six that I've trained a couple of times that they'll come up and train with me um, there's two kids. There's actually one kid that I'm really trying to train, um, which I think he's going to be a really good kid. So you should listen for his name. His name is Xander Smith. Yeah. Um, big kid. He's a freshman or sophomore. Kid's about 6'4", 223, 224. So big, solid quarterback. Um, so he's someone that I don't know who he really trains with, but I've been trying to train him. And that's like my biggest thing is um, I want to train quarterbacks, but like also the day, like I don't want to take anyone's quarterback. Because you know I mean, like I know how it develops. So like if that's your quarterback, I'll let you have him. But just finding kids that, want to train with me um, that like don't have another quarterback coach. That's really what I want. Cause I know sometimes like I have kids that they'll train with me one week and next week they will train with another quarterback coach, next we train with another quarterback coach. And it's like, okay, like who, who can claim this kid? Because I'm not claiming them because I see you train with three or four other co- quarterback coaches. And last thing I want is for me to post some, and then I got all three of these guys in my DMs and my wife trying to steal my kid. <laughs> cause, cause that happens. No, it, it yeah. does. Like there's been some of our kids that we've seen quarterback coaches post and we're like, okay, you've never trained him before. So why are you posting this? And so yeah. it's like, I never want to be that guy that's in Florida new that's doing that to other quarterback coaches. So it's just, um, it's been slow. I'd say I have about five or six kids that are um, between the ages of 12 to 14 that I think will, will probably be my, I don't say my best group, but be the group that really tests me to see if I can develop a quarterback. Because there's older kids that they've had quarterback coaches and they kind of left them to come to me. But these younger kids that are like 12 to 14, they don't know nothing. So it's like me teaching it from scratch, which I kind of love the most. Yeah, so. you get to mold the clay, right? That's exactly. The- yeah, because there's some kids, they they have bad habits and it's so hard to break. Um, but with these younger kids, I can just drive in new habits and, and you'll see within like the next session. Boom, they've learned it. And like it's it's it's, it's really cool seeing the dad be like, man, I love how fast my kid is like progress. I'm like, yeah, I love how early you get your kid into developing because a lot of people wait until their son's. 16, 17 years old to, to have him with a quarterback coach. And by then he's learned so many bad habits that it's going to take a year to even break one or two. So it's been a lot of fun. Though. I definitely enjoy it. You mentioned Stenson, uh, Stetson Bennett, who, who just won a national championship at Georgia. He, you talk about being a quarterback that people didn't want to see starting. He was I mean, one of I those love guys. Him. That, listen, that, that, I, I, yeah. And we don't talk about Stetson. I have nothing but absolute praise. I was there, and I remember telling Stetson, listen, bro, if you were 6'1", 6'2", you'd be the baddest quarterback in the SEC. Swear to God. When it comes to someone that, like, believes in himself no matter what anyone says, and, like, he's he's small, man. He's, like, 5'10", 5'11", on a great day. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just, like, plays balls to the wall, fearless, competitor. Um, and, and, I, and I can say this, even though the fans didn't want him to play – Everybody in that locker room wanted that kid to play. He was someone that, like, naturally everyone loved him. Everyone gravitated towards him. So, yeah, no, I love Stetson. That's my boy. Um, I got nothing but love for him. I mean, that kid's well, probably one of the best competitors I've ever seen in, in a very long time. Well, I was going to ask you for some good developmental stories because, obviously, he was there developing while you were there at Georgia, right? I mean, you got to spend mm-hmm. some time with him. What Tell us about that relationship 
And then to see him go out on the field and shut everybody up and win a national championship, that had to have been really ha- that made that must have made you happy too. Yeah, no. Um, so I didn't, I was never so like I said earlier, I was with the tight end. So I know Ryan Williams, Buster Faulkner, and Munkin are really the three to give that credit to for uh building up Stetson. Um, because like I said, man, like Stetson grinded. Like I remember there was times when um me, because because I was like I said, I was with tight end, so I know um I'd be out there just watching. But you would have guys like Ryan Williams um, helping Stetson after practice, really just honing on his fundamentals. And so I would say as much as it was for the coaching was also on Stetson to really understand that, hey, these were the issues that I had to fix so that I can make this team better. Um, So, yeah, I mean, and plus the talent, talent helps, man. You know, when you have Darnell Washington out there, guys like both the running backs, the crazy offensive line they had. Um, So as much credit as it goes to Stetson, that entire team was just full of freaks. I mean, seriously, they were like that team was (laughs) – that team was crazy. But, yeah, I mean, Stetson definitely had to make plays. He made some throws that I didn't think he was going to make between playing Alabama twice. Um, so just seeing his growth was, I mean, my biggest thing. I, like I said, man, that kid was 6'1", 6'2", like best quarterback in the SEC by yeah. far, probably, probably in the country. That kid yeah. can flat out just just from, like, a competitor standpoint. Like, there was times where, like, I would get there at 7 a.m. and he was there at, like, 6 a.m. an hour for me just watching film. And so it was kind of like, okay, like I remember when I was doing, so it was like, I, I really clicked with a lot of the stuff that he was doing that I knew at least the intangible parts he had, whether it was competitor, weight room, studying film, doing the right things, like all that was that. And the only problem he had was his height. Literally, that was it. And I was just like, bro, if you're about 6'2", like you'd be the baddest mother effer walking around here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, uh, as far as Tyler, uh, you know, everybody's already, mentioning him uh, with the Heisman because he won the ACC <laughs> with the ACC rookie uh, of yeah. the year award. So uh, automatically you get put in that category, right? Um, wh- what is it about him? You, you know, take us through the story of when you guys first started working together. Cause obviously I know he, he mentioned to me last year, you guys would sit down after every game and break down film. Uh, would you drive down from Tampa? Where were you at the time? How was yeah, that so... thing sort of work out? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, I was in Orlando um, and so we actually met because of Sean O'Dare. So Sean played ball at Miami. Mm-hmm. I saw that Sean was Tyler's agent. And I remember when I was at, um, when I was playing at Miami, Tyler was getting recruited when he was in Connecticut. So like, I remember watching this film some, I remember there was one time when like, um, Mark Rick had me watch his film. He was like, what do you think about the kid? And I was like, he's big, he's solid. He throws a hell of a ball. Like he could spin it. Um, so then when he came down, I was like, well, I know he's from up North. I don't know who he's training with down here. So that's when Sean was like, hey, um, what that, that's when I was out to Sean. I was like, hey, if Tyler's not training anybody, would like I would love to train him. So he was like, yeah. So then that happened um, last summer when D'Eric was a starter. And then from there, we just kind of put our head down and we kind of grinded. And I, I was really light on him just because I knew it was crazy. Um, but then when, when he became the starter, I knew that it was going to be a lot harder for us to do physical workouts just because I know like the body toll it takes on being a starter. So I was like, okay we're going to do mental stuff. So now um, once a week, whether it's a game or whether it's a practice before um, we'll watch film together. So it was just small fundamental stuff. And kind of what you heard me saying, whenever we were out there, um, when I was teaching them the left, right, he was like, no, like coach Ponce wants us to do a one punch. That's fine. We'll do a one punch. So it's like, one thing I can say is that I try to teach the way that the coaches teach them. Cause that's one thing, like, it doesn't matter what I teach. If I'm teaching you something wrong that your coaches isn't teaching, you're not going to play. And then they, my goal is to put you on the field, not to like teach you something and keep you off the field. Um, and so I would say that like that, that's like the biggest thing with me and Tyler is just the constant open communication. Hey, like this is what the coach wants. This is what I'm learning. This is what we're doing. So I'm able 
to actually help him instead of me trying to like teach him something different that the coaching staff is teaching him. Um, so I, I, I think that's been the biggest thing between me and Tyler is like the open communication, the ability to like sit down for an hour, watch film and actually be productive just through like open communication. Cause sometimes it's hard, you know, when you're not in person, it's hard to like actually get better, <clears throat> but he's someone that's very diligent in his work. And I think that's, what's really taken him so long, whether it's a zoom call, whether it's in person, like he's able to at least take one or two things away and actually implement it in what he's doing. So you would actually drive down from Orlando, meet up with him in, in, in at Miami and just sit and watch film with him? Because he, he kind we of did sometimes. So yeah. like, there was one time where like we trained and then we went to um, we went out to breakfast and we watched film for about two hours at breakfast. So there were times when, yeah, like I had a free weekend and like I say, it was a home game. If it was a home game. I would, I would go to the home game. We'd watch it and then we'd watch film together. But if it was like an away game or like I was busy or out of town then we would do Zoom calls. But there were about two or three home games where I came down and we, we got on some in-person zoom calls. And obviously those are more productive because I'm able to stand up and really show them. But sometimes over the phone, it's kind of, it's kind of hard when we're doesn't zoom calls and he, he yeah. kind of doesn't like it, but he definitely at least gets something out of it. Yeah. He, and he talked about how, how much he's just trying to, I guess, sort of improve his ability to throw on the run. And you were, you were always a mobile guy who could do that. And, and one of the things that I get a kick out of watching you is how you use stuff from other sports. Like, you know, you talk about baseball with the hips and, uh, you know, the basketball, you even use a little basketball reference a couple of times, like uh, just in body movements to explain it to the kids, uh, the high school kids and, and even Tyler and, and Jakari. Um, can you talk about that? Just the, the style yeah, of, of what it is that you're teaching them and, and what, you know, what his emphasis is. Yeah. So, um, so the, the two things I teach is one um, balance like basketball. So if you had to cover me playing basketball, whether your feet are too wide or too narrow, that's not what we want. You know, you want a good balance, a good base. And so that's kind of what I teach. Hey, at any point when you throw, can you be in an athletic basketball position? Um, that's kind of where it's slight knee bend, but you're still tall. Um, and then secondly is, is baseball with torque. So um, a lot of kids, they're very linear, uh, not linear, but yeah. So like, one thing that I teach is, well, not really me, but David has taught me to teach is whenever you throw your shoulders, stay like on this level plane. So a lot of kids, they get very tilty and they get very on their front foot. So what I teach is the same way when you watch a baseball hit or even a box, like when they punch or when they swing heads behind the ball, weights on the back foot, they're very rotational. You don't see a baseball player unless it's an off speed and they're off balance. You don't see them way out front lunging to swing a bat. You see them behind the bat, weights back and there is through rotation. Um, and that's kind of the same way that we teach um, is rotational throwers. You know, we teach that the upper half and lower half are separated. So like whenever the lower half comes back, the front, the bottom half should be firing. So you feel the actual power in your stomach. So like whenever your hips are going forward, but your arms and core are going backwards, you'll feel that rotation. And that's kind of what we're trying to teach them is, hey, take the pressure off your arm. Use your core, use your legs, teach your arm just how to guide the football. And that's kind of the way we um, we teach. And I mean, you'll, you'll see like um, I know the – um, and uh, Mendoza, the kid that's committed to Cal, he even said he was like, the ball feels like I'm effort, effortlessly thrown. It's like it should. You shouldn't feel like you're straining your arm to throw a football because that's that's not using your whole body. You're using just your shoulder. Um, so really teaching them that, kind of teaching them how to use their entire body to throw instead of just big leaners, big heavy forward throw. Because that's a lot of people teach, hey, push off your back leg, push forward and throw. No, you want to rotate violently and then guide the ball with your arm. Not guide it, but just place it with your arm. Yeah, it's kind of a new new way to throw it. And, and Tyler talked uh, when we were walking uh, out after the workout, I asked him, you know, what what is it specifically? And he says, well, you see Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady and how they use their torque to throw the ball. And, uh, and you know, and it's one of those things we all watch it right on SportsCenter. And we're all like, wow, that was a hell of a throw. How did he get the ball there? 
And this is the science behind it, essentially, right? Yeah, it is. Um, yeah, it's just teaching them. Like, so to me, there's like key points, you know. Um, so whenever I'm in the pocket, I want my back ankle set to my target. Because if I'm going to throw to you, I'm going to turn sideways. My literally, my right ankle is going to be pointed right at you. I'm going to step and I'm going to throw. I'm not going to be pointed way over here and then I open and turn and throw to you for warming up. It's like in the pocket, teaching them that. And then on the run, as we're teaching them, hey, like your legs might be going crazy, depending on if you're arcing back, if you're going forward, wherever you're moving your front shoulder really closing it off, creating that power with your core and then throwing helps them. Cause a lot of kids, they want to, they, they, they see all the time, they jump up, they want to turn midair and throw. And you kind of saw the kids, um, the high school kids doing that. Keep your feet in the ground, use your core and really like use your core to throw. Um, so teaching them how to do that, because the more you can use your core to throw and you can kind of figure Hey, if my front shoulder is here, I'm going to be more accurate instead of me trying to figure out my upper and my lower half really, picking one to really focus on so that you can find that kind of consistent arm slot or arm motion or really like decision-making point um, for where you want to throw the ball. So kind of helping them figure out one thing to focus on that's saying, hey, like if my front shoulder is in front of the target, I know the ball is going to go in front of the target. Sometimes it's hard whenever you're running away from a 6'4", 300-pound man, like what do I think about and how to be accurate? And that's just one point that I give them. Hey, as long as your front shoulder is closing in front, you'll have power and you'll be able to be, throw an accurate ball. So. I wanted to ask you about Jacari Brown because I, I really like this kid. I think physically the tools that he has, you know, able to run, throw, just I was watching him work with you and he, he was putting balls on the money down the field very much the yeah. way Tyler was. I got to imagine what, what, what is your first impression? It's, it's got to be good of this kid, right? Yeah. Um, my first impression is just like raw. Like he's really raw. Um, I mean, he, as you can tell, great arm talent. I mean, kids smiling, having a great time. You saw him out there dancing. Yeah. Um, so great energy. Um, he just, like, there were some points where I would see him. He was like, man, I've never thought about it like that. Or like, man, like, thank you. You know what I mean? So you can just tell that he's still learning. So um, I, I, I would say he probably has the biggest ceiling that I've seen in a very long time. Um, just through raw talent, size. He's long. He's lanky. He's athletic. Um, and you can tell he loves football. Um, and I think his biggest thing is going to be not the physical aspect, but one consistency. Can he consistently make the throw over and over again? So that's the thing I try to tell him. It's, it's cool to make the throw once. Can you sit here and make it 10 times in a row? That's when you know if you're really good. Because I promise you, if you watch Tom Brady, he'll make this throw 10 times in a row. Like, that's where you want to go. So we got to train like that. And I know, like, last time we trained, if you were there, you can ask Tom. We talked to him. He got mad because we did a drill where I had the receiver run a hitch. I had him stationary. And I had Tyler throw the ball right here. I had him place it. I was like, if his hands move, you have to, uh, if his hands move, you have 10 push-ups. If you hit him perfectly, I have 10 push-ups. And Tyler was like, on my ass, because you can't do it. You can't. I'm like, no, your form's wrong. Your form's wrong. It's okay. Listen, take your time, slow down. Let's do it right. He did it right. The guy's hands didn't move. I did 10 push-ups. Okay, you're right. I said, I, I know I'm right. If you do it right, you'll hit it 10 out of 10 times. So it's like, getting them consistently to understand what they're doing so that they consistently throw that whatever ball they want to throw, they'll, they'll throw it consistently. So that's really what I try to teach them is it's, it's, it's not good enough to do it once. Like, yeah, it looks cool. Yeah. You made some cool throw, but if you can't do it 10 out of 10 times, let's train to where you can do it like that. So where you can close your eyes and make that throw no matter who's there. Yeah. And, and they were throwing it on the money, man. It was impressive to watch, watch you yeah, work with them. Um, I'm, I'm definitely excited about both. I'm going to have a big year. I know that, um, Jakari is going to have his hands full with Jake Garcia. I mean, being at Georgia, that kid can flat out compete. That was a hell of a ball. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I'm excited. It, there's been a long time since we've had competition this this fierce at quarterback. Um, so, like, it, it's one of those decisions that it doesn't matter who really comes out on top. All, all three of those kids are really good. Um, but definitely excited for next year's Jakari and potentially Jakari and uh, Garcia, depending on how Tyler, what Tyler decides to do at the end of this year.
Yeah, I think he definitely uh, would would like to go pro and go in the first round. And people are, are saying those kind of things about him. That potentially yeah, I mean, he my biggest thing to him is because, um, you know, the, the like I want to get him with Brad, you know, because Brad kind of had that same thing. Because I remember whenever um, it was Brad's junior year, Brad was supposed to be the number one pick going to the 49ers. I remember he was happy to because I, I might be going back home to California and blah, blah, blah. Obviously, he didn't get drafted first round. So it's really like. Yes, there's an expectation, but like I, I haven't had it. So I don't want to teach him what it's like to live because, you know, like I was good, but Tyler's up there kind of the same level that Brad Kaya was. So it's like if I can, I'm, what I'm trying to work on is get a call with Brad and Tyler. So Brad can be like, yes, like I've been there. I've heard the hype. This is what I would have done differently. This is what I would do to consistently be where you're at. So kind of just having Brad see if Brad will just pour a little bit of mental part into him from Brad experience of kind of having that same, that huge hype of potential first round draft pick. Everyone's kind of looking at you being like the star of the team. Um, so kind of have Brad helping them in that mental aspect for some points. Did Brad really trip or, or was it more a health issue with him that, that hurt him? I know his, he had the back issues uh, that he had. Yeah, he had the back, he had the ankle. Um, his, his ankle was messed up for a while. I mean, I think that was a lot of his stuff was just um, towards the last couple of years. He just had a lot of injuries, a lot of like lingering injuries. That was just some of those NFL guys just didn't like it. Yeah. So, yeah, and he ended up being, I think, a sixth round pick and and really uh, the only quarterback uh, Miami's had drafted in a while. Wow. And it's it's crazy to think about. And, and, so and then exactly. So that's why I really for him, I want him to really talk to Tyler and be like, yeah, because like I, I like I said, I wasn't drafted. So I don't want to speak on something that, that I haven't been to. So it's like putting him on someone that's a Miami alumni that I know I can trust that'll speak some real good, positive words into Tyler. So, yeah. And, and uh, I'm sure Tyler will be able to, to, you know, soak it all in and use it uh, positively. That's what uh, he does. He's a very driven kid. Uh, Malik, you, you've given me so much time, man. I feel like I could go on for hours talking with you. <laughs> so knowledgeable, experienced so much at the university of Miami and, uh, Man, uh, I, I'm glad that you're involved with these kids and, and teaching them what you learn, because I think the, as we covered pretty profusely here in this conversation, the mental aspect is such a big deal. And, and with social media and everything else, it can really affect you as a person and affect your, your mentality and the way that you carry yourself. Right now, I think everybody loves Tyler Van Dyke, but we know it's going to happen, right? There's going to be a game. There's going to be a moment where he doesn't play his best. And we'll see what happens, uh, you know, and how he sort of deals with it. Did you talk to him much? Um, and this will be the final one. I'll let you go. But did you talk to him much after those first couple starts when he did struggle a little bit and had kind of a, you know, that those rough first halves? Yeah, um, we talked. Um, and I think his biggest thing was just that he just had a couple missed opportunities. Um, and we agreed with it. I think that was the biggest thing was like, OK, whatever. And kind of like what we said earlier on, on the games you play bad, let's figure out what we can learn from the games. We play good. We roll through those clips. Like if he threw a good ball, like good ball, good feet, good ball. Good. Let's move. When he does something wrong, we'll spend a good five to 10 minutes figuring every, was it your feet placement? Was it the arm angle? Was it your shoulder lean? Like what threw you off? And so I think that that was the biggest thing was that those first couple of rough halves, Tyler was really able to figure out what I did wrong and not repeat the same mistake. And obviously it happens where every once in a while you, you'll miss a throw, but for at least for the most part, fundamentally, he really changed from week to week. And he really did a good job of like developing himself when I wasn't there. So I think a lot of the praise goes to Tyler. I think that he'll be someone that yes, he'll have a couple bad, maybe a quarter, a couple bad uh, series, but I mean, he's someone that he's going to learn fast from the mistakes. Um, obviously one thing I can say too for Tyler, and I hope he's listening is that defenses are going to change. Um, that's, that's the biggest thing that I learned from my junior year to my senior year. 
coverage changed. People played us differently. People schemed me differently than what they did my junior year because they had a whole year film to watch on what I like to throw, what routes I like to run, different things like that. So I think that defenses will do that. So I think that's going to be his biggest thing is how he adjusts because defenses will adjust to him because they're going to try to take away the deep ball. That that That's his thing. He loves deep balls. He's, he's That was probably one of the prettiest deep balls I've seen in a very long time. So it's like I could see in the future defense is really making him beat him underneath. And it's going to be very annoying for him and for the Miami fans where they might have to give him all underneath routes. And that's kind of what teams did to Brad Kaya late was they said, hey, we're not going to let you over the top. We're going to put everyone deep and we're going to make you beat us with underneath slants, little hitches, things like that. And so it's going to be about this year is if teams play Tyler like that, how to really make them pay. And then from there, when they take, when they give you the shots, don't miss it. So. Yeah, he, it's uh, it's going to be a challenge. Like you said, the coordinators have a whole year to plan for you. Yeah, I mean, if, 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 if I'm a defensive coordinator, number one thing I'm doing, no deep balls. I'm playing back, and I'm making Miami drive a 15, 18-play series over and over again because most teams can't do it, honestly. Like, if you're talking to any defense coordinator, they want you to drive long. And now the fact that Tyler can show you that he can hit the deep balls, they're going to play off. And, I, and that's going to be my biggest thing to him is don't get impatient, take what they give you. Don't 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 miss the deep shots, but but just definitely play within yourself. So do you do you talk to Frank Ponce at all? Obviously, he, he has only a certain amount of hours. He can he can work yeah. with the quarterback. Uh, so. I have not, but I do want to come this summer and talk to him. Um, mm-hmm. Me and Ponce have a great relationship. I haven't talked to Ponce in a while, but um, <clears throat> when I was on, well, not on staff, when I was at Miami, um, he would always come down and, and do a lot of stuff for Coley. Um, during the summer camps at Miami that we used to run. So, I mean, I love hanging out with Ponce. He's a great guy. I, I was actually really excited that they got Ponce. Um, so I definitely can't wait to connect with him sometime whenever we both get some free time this summer, potentially when I'm down in Miami. Yeah. Well, uh, listen, man, I'm glad, like I said before, I'm glad you're you're working with the kids and teaching them everything you learned. I think uh, Miami fans probably don't appreciate enough what, what, what you're giving them, uh, giving these kids as far as knowledge. It's important to hear it from their peers, guys that they know sat in that job and lived it. Right. Uh, it, it comes mm-hmm. off differently. I think than when a coach talks. Yeah, no, it, it definitely does. Um, and that was some of the stuff that I learned is that, um, some coaches can talk it, but when these kids see, hey, like, I, I, I've I, seen you do it. I know you've done it. They listen a little more. And, and, I, and I think that was even – that really kind of helped me when I was at Georgia and Miami, too, whenever, you know, I would talk to some of these kids, like, hey, like, why are you in the slump? And they would tell me, I was okay, like, I've been there. This is how to get out of it. You know what I mean? They would really listen to me on that kind of, that, that kind of aspect because they knew that I've, I've dealt with some of the same emotions and same things that they're dealing with. So, Malik, thanks again, man. You gave me so much time. I'm going to have more questions for you off air, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I appreciate it, man. Let me uh, let me shut off this recording and uh, thanks for tuning into the Wide Right Podcast. I'm the new-